My name is Jeff Harbach. I'm the CEO of Coffin Fellows and an MBA graduate of the University of Texas at Austin. The Latter-day Saint MBA Society was founded by a group of MBA students and alumni who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with the hope of bringing together a community of business people striving to bless the world. In this podcast, we'll hear interviews with Latter-day Saint thought leaders that we hope will inspire you both in your professional and spiritual life. For more information about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society, visit latterdaysaintmba.com. And I'll pass it over to Kurt Frankum, who will host this week's interview. Welcome back to the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. And today I'm in downtown Salt Lake City with the person who wrote me into all this, Davis Smith. How are you, Davis? Oh, doing great. This is so fun. I'm glad we're, <laughs> I know. And we're in person. We're this in person. Fun. Usually I don't get this opportunity, yeah. but we're here. And uh, now you are the CEO of Cotopaxi, which I'm sure many are familiar with. Uh, but what, what's your role with the Latter-day Saint MBA uh, society and then... Yeah. Sort of give the, the backstory about how I got in front of this mic yeah. and this podcast started. Yeah, well, first of all, I will say this is so fun uh, to be together. And, uh, you know, it's really interesting. I've, I mean, over the years done, I don't know, hundreds of, of podcasts or interviews and things. And I've never once started one with a prayer. And oh, yeah. we did that and before we, did that. we started the recording. Yeah. And I, I thought, what a, what a special experience this is. Yeah. And, um, you know, this this is a special organization. Uh, when I was in business school, I was at the Wharton School. This is back in uh, 2009 when I started. Uh, my cousin, who was one of my closest friends, uh, was up at Harvard Business School. And uh, he was hanging out with a lot of the, the crew there, the members of the church up there. And I was hanging out with a lot of you know the, the members of the church in my program. And obviously, we all have friends all over the school. But those, there's something special about yeah. that group that you have and the, the shared faith. And I just recognized as I was going up to HBS to visit him or he'd come down to, to Wharton, I just thought, man, some of those classmates that he has that are members of the church, like I could have been like best friends with some of them, except we just happened to go to a different school and thought, you know, there's might, there might be an opportunity to bring us all together. And the first year in business school, uh, it's, a, it's really intense business school is, so I didn't get a chance to do anything then, but it was still in my mind. And my, my second year, I started telling a few of my business school friends about this idea and a couple of them brandon pay and evan mcmullen really jumped on the idea as well with me and so the three of us organized the first uh what we called the lds mba conference we held it in new york we thought new york would be kind of a draw so we did it at columbia uh, the, the the school there and uh clayton christensen came and spoke and we had a bunch of other amazing speakers and uh we had about 170 or 180 I think maybe a little over 180 uh, students from around the country and even a couple international schools, INSEAD and others that students came in and it was amazing. Like hmm. We had such a great time learning and uh, getting to know each other. And I've developed friendships at that conference. In fact, there was even a, a, a couple that ended up getting married. They met at the conference. Oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> uh, they were at two different schools and they met there. And it was like, this is fantastic. And, uh, you know, uh, Brandon, who was a year behind me in school, just decided, you know, he was going to run the conference the next year. I was graduated. And then he kind of passed it along to some other students, I think, at HBS. And then it went over to Stanford and Kellogg and Chicago and um, just organically just kept going. And um, almost, uh, I don't know, maybe eight, nine years later, uh, Eduardo, uh, who was helping, has helped really kind of put this whole thing together, he reached out and said, hey, like, I'm interested in creating something that's more long-term, not just this annual conference, but 
something a little bit more. And I loved the idea. And so we, we teamed up and one of the ideas was to create a podcast. And of course I knew you and yeah. from leading saints and thought, Ooh, I know the perfect guy. If we can just figure <laughs> out a way to rope him into doing this. Yep. And so, uh, we knew that we wouldn't be good podcast hosts, but, uh, <laughs> we knew a pro. So yeah, that's how this whole thing got started. Yeah. And it's been a lot of fun. You know, I've, I have a business, an undergrad business degree and, uh, and it's just been fun to sort of jump back in that world and, and, uh, interact with people, um, that sort of have similar experiences, but then hear about some of these dynamic experiences of, of some remarkable business schools and whatnot. So yeah, really yeah. cool. So for you, I mean, you have a remarkable story, especially the story of your, your company and, and whatnot, but where did it begin for you as far as you thought, when I grow up, I'm going to start a company of outdoor apparel. Yeah. <laughs> Was there a moment of like, I want to be a business professional? You know, I didn't know what I wanted to do growing up. I, I think probably like a lot of kids, I thought it'd be fun to be an astronaut at some point, and then a, maybe a, I thought it would be maybe be a dentist or. A, <laughs> I remember thinking, oh, I'm going to be like uh, Bruce Lindsay on. Maybe I'll be an anchor on TV or something. And you know, I had uh, when I was in school, I thought at BYU, I thought maybe I'd, uh, you know, be an attorney. But maybe I really wanted to focus on international development and. Um, did an internship in Peru where I met a, a, a business guy and he kind of told me, you don't, you don't want to be a lawyer. Like no lawyer really likes their job very much. Like you should think about business. And so there was, I mean, I really wasn't at BYU. It was very exploratory. I, I studied international studies. I didn't study, I didn't have a, a business major. I did a business minor. I started to realize I had some interest in, in business. I did a, what was called the global management certificate at BYU. So it took mm-hmm. some additional international business classes. Um, but I think one of the factors, which is a story I've, I've shared before, but was a, a mentor of mine named Steve Gibson, and he was a philanthropist. Uh, I was so inspired by the good work he was doing in the Philippines uh, with the Academy for Creating an Enterprise, and uh, he was re- lifting return missionaries out of poverty through entrepreneurship, and I wanted to work for him, or I wanted to help him expand his program to Latin America, and he was one of the first people that told me, he's like, I, I see in you, you'd be a great entrepreneur. And you should go start your own business and then you'll find your own way of making a difference. And I learned now, Steve, I think he tells everyone they'd be a great entrepreneur. So uh, <laughs> I don't know that I was anything special, but it gave me confidence to go try to pursue that path. And yeah. so, yeah. And do you find yourself like in some of those mentoring relationships where, you know, now you're the, the mentor where you sort of intentionally give people permission that, you know, you, you really should go be an entrepreneur and maybe it's not a, yeah. just a general statement. Yeah. You know, I've, uh, I think when I was in business school, uh, I had, I, you know, honestly, I, I was very intimidated. I mean, it was it was such an intense program. I was doing a dual master's degree, an MBA and an MA in international studies. Uh, I think 40% of my class had gone to an Ivy League undergrad as well. So like, these were brilliant people. And I oftentimes felt uh, inadequate to be mm-hmm. there. And I remember telling so many of my classmates, wow, like you are so brilliant. Like you should be an entrepreneur. Like it's not that hard. You know, you, you would do much better than me because <laughs> you're so smart. And what I realized is that like, um, not everyone is wired to be an entrepreneur. And I think I've done, uh, I think I do that less than I used to, where it's like, oh, you should be telling everyone they should be an entrepreneur. <laughs> it's not for everyone. And it's, it's, it's incredibly fulfilling. And, and you know, uh, yeah. you're very entrepreneurial yeah, sure. yourself, uh-huh. uh, but it's very challenging and hard and uh you certainly have to be wired a certain way and um so yeah but i yeah. definitely i love 
when I see someone that I think would be great, I love telling them that. Yeah. yeah. And even in the context of, you know, going to MBA school, just, you know, MBA school isn't, isn't entrepreneurial school, although it can serve entrepreneurs really well, mm -hmm. but you can, there's some great companies out there to, to, uh, you know, be a part of and, yeah. and really see a difference within a established company. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And you know, everyone has a different path. And so I have an, I have a younger brother that's about 12 years younger. He's an entrepreneur. He would love to go to business school, but he probably won't be able to because he's 31 and he's, you know, he's running a venture backed business that he doesn't have the ability to go take two years away from yeah. the business. And he's trying to figure out how to do it. And I keep telling him, man, there's no, I don't see how you could do a full-time program. So yeah. Uh, not everyone needs to do an MBA for sure. So, uh, break down your your education journey. So you got your undergrad from BYU. Yeah. And then did you? What happened after that? Yeah. In fact, um, this is something I rarely talk about, but why not? Uh, let's be vulnerable. Like I didn't get into BYU out of high school. Neither uh, did I. Oh, did oh, is that right? <laughs> they rejected me three times. I, I told that <laughs> to uh, Daniel Snow when I interviewed him, and he apologized. And I said, "Well, can I get an official apology from BYU?" <laughs> Anyways, but yeah, that is so funny. I was in the same boat. <laughs> okay, so yeah, I didn't get in. I I was actually put on the wait list. I didn't even know a wait list existed, uh, and then I was ultimately rejected. And I was pretty disappointed. Yeah. You know, my older brother was there and uh, my yeah, parents. Yeah, we're a big BYU family. It was, it yeah, hurt the pride. Yeah, it does. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, oh man, you know, and admittedly I could have worked harder in high school. I did fine, but I, I, uh, I could have done better. Mm -hmm. um, I was still figuring out who I was, you right. know, and looking back now, it's like, oh, I'm just, I'm an entrepreneur, you know, like I was distracted by a lot of interesting things that were not in the classroom. But um, I went to Solid Community College for my first year of school. And uh, it was, I, I paid for my mission. I came from a big family, so my parents, my dad worked for the church. We didn't have a lot of money, so I, <laughs> I knew I was on my own to pay for my mission and for school. So I worked and um, stayed at home that first year, transferred to BYU after my mission, and graduated from BYU, ended up starting my first business uh, a number of months after I graduated, and uh, then six years later went back to do my MBA and the MA in International Studies at, at Penn. And then uh, that's it. Yeah. So when you graduated, was there, did you like walk out of, of the school feeling like I'm going to start a business or where did that start? That Very idea? soon uh, around the time I graduated was when I started realizing I was entrepreneurial mm -hmm. and that I wanted to do something on my own. And I worked for a, a great company here in Utah called Del Sol. Mm -hmm. uh, they also own some stores called Caraloha now. And uh, I did an internship for them. Honestly, I did it because it was in the Cayman Islands. My wife and I got to go live <laughs> oh, in Grand really? Cayman for eight months, which was like, amazing. Um, but I found that I actually loved retail. I loved uh, brands and I loved telling stories and leading teams. And it was just a great learning experience for me. And uh, I worked for the Peterson family and uh, I got to see, uh, you know, Steve Schoen, who was the founder of the business. Uh, his wife was a Peterson and uh, he was in his young thirties and I'm watching him build this business. And I thought, I could do that. And mm -hmm. so they, they hired me when I uh, came back, they hired me to work for their corporate office. I worked there for a handful of less than a year. I was still finishing school. And then I graduated, worked for them for a handful of months before starting my first thing. But that was, that was part of the inspiration as well. Yeah. So starting that, uh, that first business, was it, I mean, a lot of risk on the table, you just, you just jumped or what was oh, the yeah. feeling? Yeah. I mean, I remember telling my cousin who I started the business with, uh, I would never quit my job. I it was too scary. Uh, I had a brand new baby, uh, a little, a tiny little house, a mortgage. It, it was a two, two bedroom, one bath house, but uh -huh. it was a mortgage and yeah. it was, uh, I was terrified. Um, it was very scary. We, you know, we borrowed money from my 
you know, for my grandma, maybe 10,000, none of our family had money, you know, right. but uh, borrowed 10 grand from my grandma, from some, some friends from school. Like we just pulled money that we could from anyone that would give it to us. And um, we started buying pool tables on the, you know, and selling them on the internet. So it was a pool table business. It was a pool table business, pooltables.com. Have you, yeah. have you always been like a pool junkie or, no. or a pool shark? I think is the term. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, my grandmother, uh, had a pool table. And so, uh, I remember playing at my grandparents' house as a kid with my cousins in the summers when I'd come, my family lived in, the, in, uh, in Latin America. So we'd come back to the U S in the summers. And that was kind of my uh, my experience with the pool table. I knew yeah. nothing about them, but it was a product and a business and it looked challenging. Yes. It, it, I, I felt there was an opportunity to go, uh, to build something that we could sell online. And, uh, I learned a little bit about China and my studies in undergrad and thought, you know, that that's what you manufacture. And I went on, I had an AOL, uh, free internet disc that came in the mail <laughs> and, uh, that's how I used the internet. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, went home that night and I, I went and Googled pool table factory, China and found some factories that made pool tables. And I started looking on eBay and I was following and tracking every single pool table that would, that would sell. I had a spreadsheet where I tracked how much they sold for. And I had a pretty good idea after a few weeks of what they could sell for and what I could buy them for. And thought, what if we went and created our own brand, sold direct to consumer. And that's how we got started. So wow. we did, did about a million in our first year. Yeah. So it worked. And at this point, as you're starting a business, is there always this thought like, at some point, I'm going back to business school? Where did that come later? No, I, I obsessed over business school, huh. like maybe in an unhealthy way. Like <laughs> I had a spreadsheet that I had spent, I can't even, I'm embarrassed to say how many hours I, I, I spent on the spreadsheet, but it was like I had every school, I had every little stat from every school, and I started diving into, into all of them to understand their cultures and what they were good at, what, what they specialized in. And, I discovered that Wharton had a program that was really uh, that was really interesting to me. It was this dual degree called the Lauder Institute, um, where they admit about seventy students, but everyone has lived abroad. They speak a foreign language and at advanced level, so you have to test into the program with the language. And uh, as I researched the program, I was like, "This is exactly what I want." Uh, so. Uh, that's where I ended up going, and it was amazing. I mean, my yeah. class, everyone spoke, most of them spoke like three, four, five languages. Uh -huh. so they, I mean, it was a very diverse group. We went, I, went to, I went to 30 countries during the 24 months of this program. Really? Yeah. All part of whatever the, the program yeah, was. Yeah, either part that. of the program, there was like, you have to do like a thesis, which is international in different countries. I went to North Korea and Cuba for my thesis, and um, then a bunch of the other, just your classmates everyone loves traveling. So it's like, yeah, you have some weekend, some long weekend. They're like, Hey, why don't we all go to X, Y, Z? And, uh, it was, it was a great experience. Yeah. So this was, you went to Wharton six years after starting the yeah. pool table business. I was, I was 30, uh, when I started the lotter program and 31 when Wharton started the gotcha. program. So when did you know, like you had these spreadsheets and whatnot, when did you know, okay, I'm going to now apply. So I, uh, I identified at this point that like Wharton was the place for me. And most of the time I'd encourage, you know, people to apply to like three or five schools. I knew I had to go to Wharton. I was like, I, it was, it was calling me and uh -huh. it felt like it was the perfect fit for like my life experience having grown up in Latin America and, um, building this business where we were doing business in Asia and some other places. And so, um, I, I, I knew I wanted to go there. And then my cousin uh, had really always dreamed of going to Harvard Business School. And he was your business partner in the, in the, in the yes, pool business. Thank you. Yeah, the in pool the, in, table business. In the pool table <laughs> business. Yeah. And so he was the one that really said, hey, it's time. 
I'm going to go back. I'm going to apply to school. And uh, you're welcome to join me and apply or, or not. But if we wait much longer, we're going to be too old to go. And honestly, it was him deciding to go that really, it was like, that's, this is it. Like, uh, I'm not going to let him go yeah. and not go myself. Like, let's, so we, let's apply. So we both uh, started studying for the GMAT and it was pretty intense. I, I studied every night uh, from 10 p.m. to midnight for three months hmm. and uh, had a pretty rigorous I'm not, a, I'd say I'm not a, dis, like, I'd say discipline is not like one of my strengths, my cowering strengths. So this was, it took a lot for me to like buckle down and just say, I am studying every night for two hours. Huh. Um, for three months. For three months. And that's, and you felt prepared walking into that. Yeah. yeah. And then I, then it was, it, yeah, it went well. So, yeah. um, yeah. so yeah, then that was a, a fun process. So through various interviews I do for this podcast, I keep hearing sort of this feeling, this sense of like, I had to go like that as far as whether it was Wharton or Harvard or whatnot. And I talked with the quick, Nate, yeah, Nate said yeah. the same thing about yeah, Harvard. Yeah. yeah. Jeremy Andrews as well, where it, he was like, he sat down with uh, Kim Clark is like this and this is going to happen. So if you don't accept me this year, I'll be back next <laughs> yeah. year. Right. And so I'm just curious, like there, cause there's a sense of like, man, I almost feel drawn almost like a spiritual draw. Like this yeah. is part of your plan, Davis, you know, like yeah. the, step into this, this larger story. But then there's also this, you sort of set yourself up for disappointment. I'm sure there's many that are like, yeah, I felt called to Stanford or to Harvard and they rejected me four times or whatever yeah. it is, you know? Yeah. So anything you'd say to that, that, as far as that feeling when you get so hyper-focused on maybe a specific school? I mean, I think it's, I think honestly, it's probably a great thing to feel. <laughs> it's a great thing to feel that, that drive. Yeah. Uh, and you know, for me, it, it served me well because I knew I wanted to go to a top school and it ended up being that I needed to create a story that would help me get there. And so it was very motivating. Uh, I can also, you know, having not gone in, gone to BYU when I first applied, like I, I understand the pain of not getting into the place that you always thought you were supposed to go to. Yeah. And, um, and I'll just say like the Lord, I really believe this, the Lord has a path for each of us. And sometimes it's not exactly what we thought or want. Uh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then what would you say as far as your experience of running a business? I mean, I would imagine, I'm not sure as far as the admissions process, but Wharton probably looked at that like, hey, this guy, he's been running this pool table business. Like he should probably be a good candidate. So yeah. is that maybe a good plan between undergrad and, and business school? Yeah. I mean, I honestly, like my, my GPA was good. My GMAT score was good. But honestly, like there were, I'm sure thousands of applicants more qualified than me to get in. But what was unique is that no one had done what I'd done. Yeah. No one had built a pool table business. No one had had pooltables.com and had built a team. And, you know, we had physical retail stores around the country. So I had a unique story. I mean, I'd grown up in Latin America and um, I, I really, I focused every piece of my essays on those two things, mm -hmm. entrepreneurship and this international passion that I had from growing up there. And, um, I think that that helped a lot. I mean, in the end, at the end of the day, these schools are looking to curate a very diverse class. And yeah. so they want people that are different and they have a lot of bankers and a lot of consultants that apply. 
hmm. that look very similar on paper. Yeah. So if you have a different story, I think that's a positive. Yeah, I would imagine, you know, from a business school's perspective, they see someone like you and then they say, this guy's already done something. So it's very likely after he graduates from our school, he'll go do something. And now they can say, oh yeah, the CEO of Cotopaxi, yeah, he went to Wharton. You yeah. Know, it's like, uh, I, I can see this sort of, I don't know if they do that direct thinking, but it makes sense to really show, prove yourself beforehand. Uh, yeah, I know. I, I certainly think schools are thinking about that. It's like, how are the, you know, are these people that are going to get back to the school, not even necessarily financially, but just, are they going to get back to the school? Like, I love going back on Wharton campus. I mm-hmm. go every year to go speak to students. And I think that's what they're looking for. Yeah. People that are passionate about yeah. Wharton or their, their, their school. Another thing I'm, I'm seeing come to the surface as I do these interviews is um, the sense of adventure that a lot of these successful entrepreneurs or professionals had even throughout MBA school, you know, the Quigley's had this, the, I can list off others where, you know, you talk about this job opportunity where it took you, was it the Cayman Islands? Yeah. Right. Like just the sense of like, we're, we're, I'm not just going to get a job to get a job, but how can we rope in some adventure here that really, uh, magnifies maybe your experience or gives you diverse opportunities. And even with Wharton, it sounds like you got some really unique experience internationally because of that sense of, I'm going to step into this adventure, right? Yeah, absolutely. I remember uh, when I was a student at Wharton, Evan McMullen and I came to BYU campus. We flew out here on our own dime. And he and, went there as well? Is uh, that where? Yeah, yeah, we met at business school. Oh, you school. Met, met there, uh-huh. okay. And uh, this is the Evan McMullen that actually that right. ran for president exactly, today, right? right? So yeah. uh, just a really fantastic guy. But we, we flew out to Provo and we, we went to BYU and we had a, uh, an information session on Wharton. And we, we had a few hundred people that came. It was like really well attended and we were surprised how many people were there. But I remember that Evan said that if you want to get into uh, one of these top schools, you have to do something extraordinary. Hmm. And uh, he had been in the CIA and done some really wild stuff. That was before Wharton. Before Wharton. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, I love that thought. And it was, I think he's exactly right. Go find something extraordinary. And it can be totally different. It can be the CIA. It can be starting a pool table business, but something that's very (laughs) different, that's uniquely you. Uh, I think sometimes we get pressured and, and I, frankly, I even felt this when I went to Wharton, the first, the first month or two I was there, I went to an information session to learn how I could be a consultant for like yeah. Bain. Cause isn't that the typical, like, and yeah. I don't need to downplay that, but that's the typical path. Like find a big consultant firm, yeah. do your time and then go to business school. Right. Exactly. So, uh, and then when people graduate, same thing, they feel that same pressure. I'm going to go work for a big consulting firm that'll pay for my school debt oh, yeah. or I'm going to go work for a big bank. And I felt that drug is like, that's what everyone's talking about. And then I went to one session. It was like, what am I doing here? This is so not me. Hmm. And, uh, but it's easy to kind of get sucked down that path. So I would say, yeah, figure out who you are and go, go find your own path. All right. The first principle, as we do it, I've had you gather a few thoughts and principles that maybe have helped you, uh, during your professional journey, especially through business school and whatnot. The first one being be a giver. Yeah. You know, there's a, a great professor at Wharton named Adam Grant, and uh, he wrote a book called Givers and Takers. And yeah, that's great. Yeah. And, you know, I really love this concept about givers. And, you know, it was interesting because his studies actually ended up showing that uh, oftentimes the worst performers were givers. And so you think, oh, okay, the, maybe the best performers were the takers, you know, the people that always are taking from others. And mm. um, it turns out that's not the case. Actually, also the best performers were also givers. So um, for those that are givers, I think it's just learning how to give in the right way and um, not, of course, not being taken advantage of, but it's, I think being a giver is, uh, I think one of the greatest, 
uh, gifts you can give others. It's the greatest gift you can give yourself. You're going to find more joy in giving than in taking. Um, you know, I think of uh, when I was a missionary, I was in Bolivia, and uh, I was asked by my mission president to go pick up a brand new missionary. So I was in the last like two months of my mission. Uh-huh. So my companion and I go to this bus station terminal, and this missionary has been taking an overnight bus. You know, you feel horrible after getting <laughs> off the bus. You know, not made for, for tall people. And we're looking for this kid to come off the bus, and we're seeing these, uh, these cholitas, these like traditionally dressed women with like their polleta skirts and their bowler hats and their big colorful blankets on their back with their babies on their back or big bundles in there. And they're all getting off the bus. And then we see this kid getting off the bus. And his hair was so blonde, it was almost white. Uh-huh. And uh, his skin, super pale. Like only a brand new missionary's skin could be this pale. <laughs> and uh, he was radiating the biggest smile. And um, I fell in love with this kid. I mean, we loved him, Nate Davis. And uh, Elder Davis was just uh, someone that radiated joy. And he was a giver, always thinking about other people. And those last two months on my mission, I wanted to be with him all I could. So I was doing splits all the time, like trying to go find reasons to go out to his area and spend time with him. He was a mentor to me uh, as I learned from him how to love and how to give. Hmm. And, um, you know, when I, uh, when I finished my mission, I went home and, you know, a few years later, a couple of years later, he came home and we, we'd start hanging out here and there and we'd organize mission reunions. And, you know, I remember we celebrated, uh, his kids had different successes and we embraced each other when he was called to be a young bishop. And, um, we were planning a 20 year mission reunion a, a couple of years ago. And, um, a few of our mission friends couldn't afford to go back. We were going back to Bolivia, oh, cool. which was really exciting. And we had about 70 or 80 missionaries that went back. And he ended up, he lived in a small, very small, very humble home, surrounded like by an industrial area. Hmm. And uh, drove a simple car. He ended up paying for four of our mission friends to go back to Bolivia oh, wow. because they couldn't afford to go on their own. He was just so generous. He was a giver. And um, unfortunately, uh, month or two before our reunion, he got diagnosed with cancer. Oh, and wow. um, uh, about four months later, I was uh, in a hospital room with his family as they, as his children and his wife were saying goodbye wow. to Nate. And um, I was an emotional, obviously a very emotional thing to watch. And um, I went up to Nate and uh, he was unresponsive. And uh, he was laying in the bed and I put my cheek against his and I, I told him I loved him. And uh, he, he nodded, his, a slight nod of his head and a, a, a tear rolled down his cheek. Hmm. And um, Nate was a true disciple of Jesus Christ. He was a giver. Um, He's someone that I try to be like, and I, I look at the joy that he had. His funeral was just, I've never seen anything like it. Like an audience of people that just, I mean, they, he loved computers. And you might even say he was a little nerdy. Uh, <laughs> but uh, they asked in this funeral, like, uh, to stand up if Nate had ever come to your home to help you figure out something with your computer. Oh, wow. It was like hundreds of people stood up. And um, so, yeah, that's, that's, I want to try to be more like Nate Davis. Yeah. And is it just that, that memory that sort of keeps you in check as far as the day-to-day being a giver, um, just having him as, as that memory that yeah. sort of encourages you to take that next step forward? You know, I, I love, 
I love stories and I love stories of people. And I, I tend to gravitate towards those stories and, and use them as tokens in my own life to remember what matters to me. Mm-hmm. And so Nate's one of those for me, for yeah. sure. Yeah. What about Edgar? He's on your list here too. Yeah. Tell us the Edgar story. Well, anyone that's heard me speak has probably heard about Edgar, so I probably won't give the whole story. But, uh, you know, when I was in college, I, my wife and I, brand new married at BYU, uh, we went and did an internship in Peru, met a shoe shining boy on the streets that we just fell in love with, a cute little guy named Edgar, nine years old. We'd see him every day and we'd bring him food. And mm-hmm. it was the highlight of our day every day, finding little Edgar. And uh, one of our last nights there, we found Edgar sleeping on the street uh, close to midnight. And wow. someone had stolen a shoe shining kit. Um, we didn't have much, but we gave him the cash that we had, which again was just a tiny amount. And the next day as we got on a bus to leave Cusco for the last time, we saw him running next to the bus, waving goodbye to us. And um, we made a commitment to each other that's what we wanted to use our life for was to help kids like Edgar. And, uh, so I've, I, you know, I've, I've thought of Edgar every day since 2001, Mm -hmm. uh, when we met him in October and it's been almost 20 years. Um, a few years back, I went back to Peru and I actually went there specifically to find him and he's an adult now. And I, I did find him. It was uh, really a small miracle. And, uh, we've stayed in touch and, uh, I helped him go through a program where he learned to be a tour guide. Uh, he was orphaned as a, as a young boy a few years after I, I met him. So he's raising his younger siblings in a small little home made of mud with a hole in the ground for a toilet. Uh, hmm. It was really uh, heartbreaking to see how he was living. Um, but he did the three-year program. He graduated last year uh, during COVID. Uh, he reached out to me in May and said, uh, Davis, I don't know how to tell you this, but like, I am desperate. I can't feed my family. Uh, there's no tourists here uh, in Peru. They're not allowed to come in the country and there's no safety net. Like wow. I don't know what to do. And that night I went to bed um, really unsure of how to help. I didn't want to be in a situation where I was just sending him money um, because then I'd, I'd be that person anytime there was yeah, any need. Right. And um, I prayed about it and pondered and the, all night long I was sleepless and just kind of rolled around in bed thinking about him and his situation. and. About five in the morning, uh, I had this moment of inspiration where I felt the Lord really guided my thoughts. And uh, I had this idea of reaching out to Edgar and asking him if he'd be interested in giving a virtual tour to any of my friends or anyone else that would be interested for $10. People could buy a oh, ticket. Cool. And yeah. So we had, uh, I posted on social media. I pretty soon, my, all my friends and family, they all know about Edgar. So they all participated. And then pretty soon, hundreds and hundreds of other people that I had no idea who they were started buying tickets. And. He ended up uh, maybe 1,500 people bought a ticket. Oh, and, cool. uh, so life-changing experience for him. And, you know, he's been a blessing in my life. Uh, and he's changed, he's changed my life, that experience with that little boy. But it started with us just giving this little boy a meal. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think uh, the act of giving is a really powerful thing that really can transform lives. Yeah. And another one of your principles is about, you know, finding a mentor. And it's interesting to hear these stories where, you know, we see, we think of finding mentors, you go find a billionaire and then you, you ask if you can go to lunch with them. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know if there's mentorship there, but oftentimes it's these, the most simple of relationships, the youngest missionary as you're an older missionary or this, yeah. such a, a impoverished individual yeah. as someone who's from a first mm-hmm. world country. Right. And 
just in these relationships, there's a lot of mentoring that goes on that you probably wouldn't get from a billionaire, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, this is true. Uh, I oftentimes, you know, I talk a lot about mentorship here at Cotopaxi and I, I tell my team that oftentimes your best mentor isn't going to be a CEO of a company. It's going to be a peer. It's mm-hmm. going to be someone that is on this journey with you. And I've found that to be true. My, my greatest friends and mentors are, are mostly peers. They're other CEOs, other mm-hmm. uh, founders. Uh, we have a group of founders. We, there's seven of us. We go do a trip every year. Jeremy Andrus, uh, who did your interview, mm-hmm. he's on there. And a handful of other really great guys. And we do a trip every year. Um, go do some hard, hard thing. Climb a mountain together or go do a survival trip on an island for a week with no food and spearfish and eat coconuts <laughs> and stuff. So That's awesome. But, you know, these are, these are friends that have become great mentors to me. And so I've, I think that would be one piece of advice or a principle I've I, I followed in my life uh, that I'd recommend to others is to find mentors, great mentors that you can uh, build friendships with and that you can rely on. And, um, of course... There are people like Steve Gibson for me that was many years ahead of me and yeah. much more experienced that can play that role at times as well. Uh, and I'd say similarly, Jesus Christ, uh, he's our master mentor. Yeah. Uh, he lived this amazing life that we, we know very little of. Only We only know 40 days of his 33-year life. Uh, those, that's all that's documented. And very often, it's just little fractions of a day. And But I, I read of his life and... Um, the way he treated people, the way he connected with people, the way he, he interpreted their needs. And uh, I think that's what a great mentor. Yeah. So, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And, you know, just with, you know, with this principle of finding a mentor is uh, that oftentimes it's your, your peers or, you know, other people that are maybe in your same position, but in another organization where it's just sort of this brotherhood of support or it's just, nice to be around people who sort of know the day-to-day struggle yeah. that you face in whatever role that you're you're yeah. playing right yeah or oftentimes there might be maybe they're just like a step ahead of you hmm. like i think of jeremy Anders. he's just like a step ahead of me you yeah. know it's like and it's so valuable because it's like he's been through what i what i'm going through not mm-hmm. that long ago and so he can be like oh yeah like four or five years ago we had some similar things and this is how i thought about it so yeah that I find, I find that's really valuable. And so this uh, sort of retreat, that's the, the founders camp. Is that the, with other founders of, of companies? That yeah. You go so that's, and, yeah, adventure? this group of founders, we call it, we call the group, the founders camp. And oh, so, yeah, cool. it's, it's a fun group. That's awesome. Yeah. And I love that where, um, cause again, we sort of simplify mentorship that, Oh, we go to a lunch once a month or something, but I guess there's sort of this, this organization to it of putting together a yearly trip or putting together a more of a formal, um, engagement so that yeah. you have opportunity to talk, right. Rather than just yeah. getting lunch every once in a while. Yeah. I'm a big believer in experiences and I, I find that I get more and, you know, starting, we can talk about this, you know, LDS MBA conference. It was like, that was an experience. It wasn't just like, Hey, let's have a little, let's go grab lunch or something. It's like, let's go create something that's really unique that, yeah. that exposes us to each other in a unique and different way. So I'm a big believer in using experiences to go create connectivity. Uh, next principle is we have a duty to change capitalism. I'm intrigued by this. Mm. Yeah, this is one I'm learning, and uh, I really love it. This idea that, uh, you know, if we look back 200 years ago, so in 1820, Joseph Smith had the first vision. Uh, in 1820, 94% of the planet was living in extreme poverty. Wow. And this was basically the whole of human history. It yeah. was people living in extreme poverty, barely having enough to eat. And uh, 
everything changed since that first vision. And uh, when I was born in 1978, I'm 43, uh, only 40% of the world was living in extreme poverty. When I graduated from high school, it was 20%. Hmm. And uh, in the last few years, it dipped below 10% for the first time. So we have an opportunity to eradicate extreme poverty. And a lot of this has been done through capitalism. Yeah. Um, but capitalism has also been incredibly destructive to our planet. Our planet is very different today than it was in 1820. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we are exploiting the earth. We're, we're destroying it. And we are leaving some people behind in this effort to maximize shareholder value. And that's what we have to do better. And capitalism is evolving and it has evolved. You know, my grandparents, when, you know, when they were young, like during that time period, kids would work in factories like seven days a week. Like yeah. that doesn't happen anymore in the United States and mostly around the world is not acceptable. Um, we can, and we need to continue that path. So the question for everyone listening is like, well, what are you gonna do? Like, what are you gonna do to evolve capitalism to what it needs to be? Hmm. And I think capitalism needs to be more service oriented. It's not about just making as much profit as possible. It's about how do we use the skills that we have as individuals and the, the, the resources that we have in a business to go lift the world, to lift communities, to help people. And um, that's what I think if, if Christ were an entrepreneur, if he would run, if he had an MBA, <laughs> that's what he'd be doing. You know, yeah. he'd be using this business to go find a way to make the world a, a better place. And so. I found so much joy in figuring out how to do that with Cotopaxi. I didn't yeah. know how. Uh, it was a dream that I'd had from the time I'd started the, my first business, but I didn't understand how to do it yet. And so that's been really fulfilling to, to use a business where our reason for existence is to give back. Like, yeah. We are an organization. We're not an outdoor company. We're not a company that sells backpacks and jackets. We're an organization that lifts people out of poverty. Yeah. And we do that by selling outdoor gear. Um, but our real purpose is fighting poverty. Yeah. And, and in the beginning with Cotopaxi, like obviously there, you sort of had this vision of that. I'm not just going to create an, an apparel company, but we're going to have a, an additional, you know, a significant difference that we're making in the world. And I'm sure maybe many people have sort of gone through that mental exercise and then maybe realize they're a bit naive when they sort of start piecing this together. How do you avoid I mean, how do you push through that and make yeah. sure that we're going to make a difference to your business? So my, you know, when I had the pool table idea business, I dabbled in a few other ideas with my cousin and two of my other ideas involved using a business to do good. Both of the ideas we tested and they didn't work, they failed. And so it was discouraging, uh, but I was like, you know, maybe I just need to learn how to become an entrepreneur first. So we built that first business. Mm -hmm. um, when I graduated from business school, I went down to Brazil and built a business there with my cousin again. And, um, it was there that I started really thinking more about my purpose. And I was, I had made a commitment in my own head of how I was gonna use my life, but I hadn't figured it out. And I made a New Year's resolution with my family, we had family home evening and where we also had these resolutions. And my New Year's resolution was that I wanted to change somebody's life that year. And uh, my wife makes fun of my goals because they're never like specific and measurable. Like that's true. <laughs> the, like the my, smart, you know, yeah, I don't, I don't follow yeah. the smart framework. I, I, <laughs> but uh, you know, I had this, this idea that I wanted to, to serve a purpose. Uh, maybe I wanted another Edgar, you know, that's, yeah. uh, and I was laying in bed. This is in the first week of May. So, you know, of this year, uh, no, or, uh, of that same of 2013. Okay, I yeah, see. Sorry. Gotcha. So the same year I set that new year's resolution. And, uh, I was really honestly disappointed, uh, that my career was, I, I, it was fulfilling. I was building these fun companies, but like I wasn't fulfilling the purpose that I knew I had. 
And uh, I was laying in bed and uh, started having a few ideas come to my mind. I rolled over and wrote them down and thinking I could go back to sleep and just come to those in the morning. And instead, I just, these ideas kept coming. And I ended up um, going out on the couch with my computer. And, uh, you know, this was something that I'd been longing for, that I'd been praying for and hoping for my entire life. Um, since the time I was a kid growing up in Latin America and uh, knowing that I needed to find a way to help people. And um, I ended up spending that entire night on that couch, the entire next day and the entire next night. I've never experienced anything like this before in my life. Hmm. And, uh, but during those 36 hours, I had the idea for Cotopaxi, the name, our slogan, Gear for Good. Um, the early concept for the Questable, this 24-hour adventure race that we do that kind of, you know, uh, becomes kind of a, uh, a movement of people coming together to do, to do good. And um, it, for me, it was a confirmation that the Lord was aware of my desires and that he was going to, and I realize now that I needed those 10 years building two other businesses to understand how to go do what I, the Lord needed me to do. Yeah. Um, so if anyone's feeling that frustration that I felt um, or kind of that lack of direction, I was like, man, I know I'm supposed to do something more meaningful. Just know that the Lord knows. You don't know exactly how you're supposed to do it, but the Lord knows. And yeah. Elder Holland gave a great talk about this that I really loved. And um, so, yeah, he'll just keep praying, keep asking, and keep desiring that thing, and the Lord will find a way to help you figure that out. Yeah, and I love this, the part of your story of where there was sort of this wrestle where you, you took it to a mountaintop, even though it was a couch, right? Yeah. But you were just sort of like, you wrestled with it and really engage with God to figure out where that was, right? It didn't, it wasn't that you were looking at the spreadsheet and thought, oh, there's a, there's an opening in the apparel industry that I could fill, <laughs> right? Like that yeah. you really engaged with God and, and made it a spiritual experience. Which is interesting because I actually am a believer in be, like having a process for ideation. And actually I ta I've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs about running a process of ideation before you go choose your idea. Oh, okay. I didn't follow that guidance. Oh, like, interesting. And, and I think to your point though, it's like, you don't always have to be that you don't have to create the spreadsheet. Um, sometimes the Lord will guide you in a way that's unexpected. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, and I was going to reference, uh, you, I really enjoyed your interview on the, how, how I built this podcast. And so we'll link to that in case people oh, yeah, really want yeah. the long in depth, yeah, uh, cause yeah. that was an awesome interview Thank for you. sure. Um, Anything else as far as with, uh, as far as like changing capitalism and having like, let me ask you this hypothetical uh, question. I mean, if, cause I don't know with, with, uh, outdoor apparel, it's sort of like, well, of course, Davis, I mean, this is an outdoor company. You're it's good marketing to sort of be mindful of the outdoors or yeah. some of these, uh, remote uh, countries that are great to travel and whatnot. Uh, but what if you were running a pool table business today? Like, how would you, yeah. how would you approach that with making a difference? Well, I love that you asked this question. So, uh, I, so interestingly, I just, this is the craziest turn of events of my life. I actually am buying back my first business That's right so now. Awesome. And, yeah. uh, I've converted the business to a benefit corporation. And uh, the business that I sold 10 years ago, it's about double the size it was. Um, and the seller, the guy that bought it from us, he was looking to sell it and retire. And uh, he had a buyer on the line and I just decided, you know what? I know this business and uh, I wanna figure out a way to use this business for good. All of our passwords when we had that pool table business were all around social impact, even though we had no social impact at all. But uh -huh. like, that was what was in my mind. That's cool. And so, um, you know, we're converting it to a benefit corporation. We're going to fight poverty using this business that's been around for 17 years now. And we're going to have to uh, 
you know, frankly, change the culture and the focus and the, and the mission of this business. But what I love about this challenge is like, I want to go show that uh, you can go do this with any business. It doesn't matter the industry. It could be the, the billiard industry or the home recreation industry. We're going to kind of expand beyond the billiard space. Um, or it can be the outdoor industry. It can be any software. I mean, but you can, there are ways to, to take a business and use it to be a force for good in the world, no matter what you're doing, no matter how long the business has been around. Uh, there's a way to, to change it and make yeah. it a tool for good. So just give us some guiding principles as far as, you know, how you do that. Like, do you, is it mainly looking at production in certain countries or is it, because, you know, I think of like Tom's shoes where it's like, you know, buy a shoe, you'll give a shoe, but I'm yeah. sure you don't want to give away all these billion yeah, things, right? Yeah. And that, that wouldn't work or make sense. So uh -huh. are there any like just general guiding principles if you're actually going to make an impact that you can follow? Well, I'd say maybe the first principle is find something that you really are passionate about that's authentic to you. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, for me, poverty alleviation is that. It's something that I think about every day when I wake up in the morning. It's like that. How am I going to make a step towards doing that better? And so, um, whatever your passion is, you can go find a way to make that fit into your business. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, with the build your business, that's what we're going to be focusing on. You know, I think of you know, a pool table in someone's home. It's like, it's a gathering place for, you know, a father and a son or for cousins to play around the pool table when they get together. It's, it's a place where friends can spend time together. And so, you know, for me, I, I thought a lot about, you know, what are the, what's the impact that we can go have? We're going to focus on education. And, um, you know, I'm thinking a lot about Steve Gibson and the work that he does to lift people out of poverty. It's like, mm -hmm. that's a nonprofit that I'm going to be supporting with this organization to go help families, uh, these people that return missionaries that need to support a young family and they don't know how to do it and they can receive this training that can get them on their feet. And so those are the kind of things that uh, I think are, can, I can find a way to loosely tie back to my business in some way. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not always that it's, com you know, completely involved in some aspect of the actual business, but, uh, that it's definitely mission driven that yeah. a part of our profits are going to go towards yeah. this or that. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Any advice on, because you see some corp corporations do this, right? Where they'll just sort of mention some mission or global warming or whatever. Yeah. And it really comes across like, like you're just trying to market to me, <laughs> you know, like, and I don't yeah. really believe you. So is there anything that professionals or those that running business can do to make sure that it doesn't come across yeah. like you're just trying to market to me? So, yeah, this really goes back to the 1980s, this, this corporate social responsibility, CSR programs mm. that a lot of businesses were making a lot of money and they yeah. kind of realized, oh, you know, this feels great to have a lot of money, but we're getting a lot of flack from the community and maybe we should like be investing in the community and it'll create goodwill for the brand. Uh, I think we've moved past that at this point. Mm. Like this CSR uh, often to me felt like a, an afterthought. Uh, and what's different about benefit corporations and like this movement that's just starting uh, is that it's the it's your reason for existence, and uh, it's not an afterthought. It's everything you know. The rest of the business is almost an afterthought. It's like how are we you know that's how are we going to build a business and go support our cause and our mission? Mm -hmm. And so that's what I, I think. Really, it's about embedding your mission into every aspect of your business. So with Cotopaxi, it's not just us giving away money. It's how do we go impact the supply chain? How do we go tell stories of impact at our factories? How can we go, you know, we build a, you know, a community garden at one factory and another one we might, you know, go create, it's a fair trade factory where we give 2% on top of the invoice price to the employees where they can go use this pool of money to go help their kids get English classes and computer classes. And um, it's, you know, when you get a package from Cotopaxi, 
of a backpacker jacket, you get a handwritten thank you card written by a refugee here in Salt Lake. It's their first job. They write it in their native language since they're still learning English. It's like every little touch point of the brand that you're going to have with Cotopaxi, you're going to understand our mission. And that's my goal to do with this pool table business. Yeah. I like that. It's almost like a more tangible, right? I, <laughs> my mind goes to the Seinfeld episode where George is like, uh, you know, a, a donation was made in your name to the human charity or whatever. And it's sort of like, what? what is that? And like, cause sometimes we'd be like, Oh, well we, we have this write off that we just give to this, this organization, but to really yeah. like, you know, the handwritten notes or just intentionality, these, yeah, intentionality yeah. of yeah. it all is really goes a long way and seems more sincere. That yeah. Way, right. Yeah. So it needs to be authentic, I guess is, I guess the bottom line, right? Yeah. That's probably an overused word, but like if it's authentic, uh, people will know. Yeah. Consumers are smart. You know, they, they understand if it's not authentic. Next principle, implement learnings from your business into your family and church life. Yeah, so I'll make this one short, but basically I I think I started to recognize a few years ago that I wasn't doing a good job of this. I was oftentimes telling entrepreneurs all day, like, you know, when they'd ask about how do you build a great culture? And I tell them, you know, you you start with these core values and you, you build rituals and traditions around these values and you find ways to reinforce those values every single day within your organization. And you have to be, uh, everyone in the organization has to be a keeper of the flame. It can't just be the CEO. Everyone has to keep that flame. And uh, as I was driving home one day, I realized, oh my gosh, like the organization that matters the most to me, my family, Hmm. I'm not even doing this. I've built my family's culture by default instead of by design. And uh, I wasn't following my own advice in in this organization that I cared so deeply about. And so... I got home and I told my wife, you know what? I just had this epiphany, this idea that like, we need to do a better job of being more intentional about our own family's traditions and rituals and culture. So we created uh, core values. We have five core values that are attached to the letters of our last name, S-M-I-T-H. Uh, every one of them stands for something. Our kids all know what they stand for. We have a weekly meeting, uh, family home evening, yeah. uh, where we talk <laughs> about uh, you know, our values and our rituals. And it's changed the way our family operates. It's been amazing to see this transformation in our family when we become more intentional about what we do. And yeah. so um, that's, that's the general thought with that one. It's like, yeah. we learn so much in business about running organizations and leading teams. Let's take some of those learnings back home. Yeah. And I appreciate this contrast with, you know, it's important to have sort of this mission driven business, but sometimes, you know, that's focused on these great organizations, but sometimes we forget the the core organization that we go home to every day. Yeah. And, you know, I'm in a very mission, you know, driven company and it's sort of like, and I, I talk the talk about leadership, but sometimes I turn around at home and I'm not a very good leader amongst yeah. that, that organization. You You're know? not alone. So, yeah. And yeah. so it's a constant battle and balance and, yeah. and effort that, but you have to be intentional, right? Yeah. Yeah. So so that's just been a great learning for me and I'm still figuring it out, but, uh, thought that might be worth sharing. Uh, all right. Some short advice, perspective, perspective students and current MBA students. Uh, let's yeah. go down the list. What, do you, what advice do you have for these individuals? Yeah. So perspective students, uh, one of the things that I learned, I, when I was exploring MBA programs and had that spreadsheet, one of the schools that really stood out to me was a school called Thunderbird. Hmm. Uh, I'd grown up internationally. A lot of the, uh, the members of our wards in different places, countries we'd lived in, uh, some of these successful business leaders had gone to Thunderbird, which was this international MBA program. And they don't have an undergrad school. And uh, it's, frankly, it's not that well known. But if you're in the international community, you know what Thunderbird is. Mm-hmm. And I'd always kind of thought, wow, well, that's maybe where I'm supposed to go. And uh, I was in my process of over years kind of learning about different schools and cultures. I reached out to just on LinkedIn or something. I don't even know how I found them. Maybe I don't even know if LinkedIn existed, but I started Googling people probably. I don't know, but I found some phone numbers or emails of people 
that were members of the church that had gone to different schools. And I reached out to a few people that had gone to Thunderbird. And one of them told me, he's like, yeah, I had a great experience at Thunderbird. It was a great program. I loved it. But he's like, honestly, if I look back, I, I kind of wish I would have gone to a more elite school. I just didn't really think about it that much. I didn't really know. And he's like, my advice to you is to go to the very best school you can go to. Hmm. Go get into the very best program you get into and don't worry about the debt. Um, education's something that will pay for itself over time. So uh, that would be my advice to a prospective student is uh, be ambitious. Yeah. Go, go fight to get into the very best program you can get into. Yeah. Um, so going back in time, you know, to the, when you were applying, would you have applied to more schools or what does that look like in, yeah. in doing that? Yeah. I mean, generally I would say it's a good idea to apply to more than one school because <laughs> <laughs> the chances of getting into that school are pretty slim. But, you know, I think one question that's often asked is like, well, what about BYU? It's like, it's so inexpensive and it's a good school. And that's maybe one where I'd say, you know what, that, that is one worth considering. If you're a member of the church, uh, it is a fantastic program. It is so inexpensive uh, relative to these other, I mean, the dual, dual degree program I, I did, it's 100,000 in tuition a year. So, you know, you're $200,000 in tuition. Uh, it's very expensive, but, um, but in general, I would say, and there's always exceptions, there's always unique situations where it makes sense to go to one school over another. But in general, I'd say, go to the best school you can get into, and it's the network you're gonna build, the friendships you're gonna build in those schools uh, are, are gonna pay for themselves. Awesome. And then with, uh, with current MBA students, as far as serving classmates and being a giver, have you touched on that? Oh uh, yeah. Or? So yeah. So two things on that one. So first I would say you are never too busy to accept a calling and magnify it when you're in school. Hmm. Um, when I was in my first year at Wharton, um, I was still running my pooltables.com business, uh, cause we hadn't sold it yet. Did you, did you run it all the way through business uh, school? Uh, about three quarters of the way through school we sold it. Oh wow. Yeah. Um, so we hired, you know, we had a team that was kind of running it while we were away. Um, but, uh, you know, it was a small business. So it wasn't venture backed. So we didn't have the pressures of a board and those kind of things. We probably mm. had a little more flexibility, but you know, I was running that business. I had two kids. Um, I was doing a, a very, very academically rigorous dual degree program, you know, in an Ivy league school. And, um, and I was trying to start a new business. My cousin and I were exploring ideas to go do something new. I had, I guess, every excuse to say I, and I was very involved in the school. So like to say, you know, I don't have bandwidth to go serve in the church. Um, but I think one of the most rewarding things I did when I was in business school was serve with the young men in my, in my little ward there. And, uh, every Wednesday night I'd go pick up these boys from home and drive them to the church. Uh, the, you know, these are inner city kids. They didn't have, you know, a vehicle they came from single family homes or lived with grandparents and it was a huge time commitment. Uh, I was on Thursdays, I was never ready for a class. Uh, and I embarrassed myself a few times in hmm. class on Thursdays because I hadn't done the readings right. And there were times where it was, it was stressful, but uh, I look back and I'm so grateful for that opportunity that I had to serve. And um, so that'd be one piece of advice. Yeah. Uh, and I appreciate that just because you know, there's sort of this drive. I mean, you hear about some of these programs are so competitive and you want to stay up with the pack or ahead of the pack. And, but it sounds like sometimes when you magnify these callings or commit to, you know, 
being present in whatever word you're at, it may hit your grade a little bit. I mean, you're not going to flunk out. That would yeah. probably would not be a good balance there, but there's going to be some moments where you're not prepared or whatever, but you're, yeah. you found a, a good balance between spiritual and, and yeah. school, right? And the Lord will bless you. Yeah. He'll help you figure it all out. You survived. I right? survived. <laughs> and in the end of the day, it didn't matter if my GPA took a slight hit because of, you know, serving with the young man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Awesome. Any, any, anything else we're missing? Or yeah, so I guess yeah. the last piece on this is uh, when you're in school, serve your classmates. Hmm. If you're, uh, when you're thinking about how can I get the most out of my program, that's how you're going to do it. It's serving them. It's uh, organizing get-togethers. It's serving as a president of a club. It's, um, you know, it's finding ways that it's not about you. It's about bringing others together, about serving them. And I promise as you do that, you're going to get way more out of your program than you would if you just tried to take as much as you could out of everything else mm -hmm. that existed. Yeah. And so. a lot of those things probably feel like just one more thing, you know, to do or, uh, but it, it benefits you over time and, and put you in that, like you talked about just being a giver, you have to be in that mentality to, yeah. and you find deeper success. Right. Uh, Dave, this has been great. I, you know, I've learned so much. I appreciate you giving the, the opportunity to be behind this mic and talk with some yeah. cool people. And I look forward to the other conversations that, uh, that I'll be able to have and, and share with, with the listening audience. What final encouragement would you have? If you're standing in a room full of MBA students and alumni, what final encouragement would you have? You know, I loved, uh, you've done so many great interviews so far on this podcast, but, uh, you know, we heard an interview that you did with Bridget yeah. and, uh, she talked about living your spiritual life and your professional life together. And uh, I don't remember exactly, she said it much more eloquently than I just did, but uh, I love that thought, which, which is, you know, we don't have to separate these things. And I feel like I, maybe for the first time in my life, I'm doing that with Codavax. It's like my spiritual life and my professional life are one and it is so fulfilling. And so uh, that would be my maybe parting thought is find ways that you can do that. You can be authentic to who you are spiritually uh, at work. And uh, I think Clayton Christensen did that perfectly in his life. And uh, as I try to model my life after people like him, uh, that's something I want to try to continue to do better. Thank you for listening to the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Check out the show notes for more information about our guests and visit latterdaysaintmba.com to find details about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society.